The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I consider the words of that last song. There is a, a remarkable truth there for which we should say thank you, thank you, thank you that you do not turn away broken and contrite hearts. Do you have mercy on us? I need that. We need that. We need mercy from you. We need you to overlook and not pass on to us that which we deserve. We come broken and ask you to to hold it back. And you say, yes, thank you. And then we need more than that. We need to be changed and to be made new and to be aided. We need grace from you, that which we don't deserve. And you say yes to that too. Thank you. The only ground for that is what you have done, the mercy that you provided and the grace that you've given first in Christ crucified for sin. And as your people now, we every day receive from you mercy and grace, mercy and grace, mercy and grace. Bless your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are so kind. We ask you now for more as we open up your word because we need your spirit to move among us, Father, to to teach us, to reveal what's here, and to then put it into our hearts in ways that are are more than just intellectual knowledge, but are actually heart-changing and life-changing knowledge. We need your spirit for that. And so we ask you, we, we don't demand, we ask that you would now teach us that you'd Provide your spirit in abundance, Father, and that he would clear away sin from us, would bring conviction and confession. He would clear away the the cobwebs of, of tired minds and give us the ability to focus. He would clear away distractions and would meet us and explain to us something about ourselves and, importantly, something about you and how you work. So help us, Father. Open up your word and teach us and grow us as a people. Give me an ability to explain what's here, make it clear, and change us and build your church. Christ would be glorified in it and that we would be blessed with you. That's my hope and my prayer this morning, Father. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Can everybody hear me? I can't hardly hear myself, so can you hear me? Okay. So we turn our attention this morning to the second chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. And we started this chapter a couple of weeks ago, examining Hannah's prayer of praise and trust. Hannah, you'll recall if you've been here, Hannah has been the main character of the book so far. That's about to change. But up to this point, she's, she's been the focus. And when we first met her back in chapter 1... We found her in a state of of great trouble. 
The issue back there was Hannah, as, as we met her, is a righteous woman. She's faithful to the covenant of God, the old covenant. She walks with him. She trusts him. And at the same time, she has been denied by God. The text is very clear that God did it. She, God has withheld from her one of the most important explicit blessings that would be given to those faithful to the covenant. He has withheld from her children, specifically sons. So she's faithful and righteous, walks with God, and what that old covenant, different than the new covenant, but what the old covenant set up as a blessing she doesn't have. There's a tension there that she grieves over, and she has some help grieving, help being grieved. She grieves over it and struggles with it until she finally goes to God and pours out her heart before him and asks to receive from him a son, and she specifically asks it on the grounds of, I'm going to give him back to you for your service forever. Will you please give to me that I might give back what you give? And God then does answer. He gives her a son, expecting to receive it back, and by the end of chapter 1, she has taken up Samuel, probably about three, four years old, taken him up to the sanctuary at Shiloh, and given him over, kind of as an adopted son, into Eli's house. Eli's the high priest at the time. That's the flow of the story through chapter 1, and it gets interrupted at the beginning of chapter 2 as we listen in on Hannah's prayer life. That's where we were two weeks ago. She prays, rejoicing. Rejoicing as she considers what God has done and what that means he is doing. One of the themes, the main theme of that prayer is how God is going to lift up the lowly, the downcast, exalt them while tearing down the wicked, high and mighty. It's laced throughout there. He's going to break the bow of the mighty, verse 4. He, he will break into pieces his adversaries, verse 10. She prays that rejoicing as she sees it with eyes of faith and she has to see it with eyes of faith because, don't forget the context, this is still the period of the judges. She's praying this at Shiloh, and she just gave her three, four-year-old son to Eli, the high priest, which sounds good until you read today's passage. And you realize what Eli is and what Eli's house is like. At the sanctuary at the center of worship, at the house of God, in the house of the high priest, in fact, the high and the mighty wicked still are in charge and the downcast are still cast down. And she prays rejoicing. There's something bumping into each other there, which is what we're going to be looking at today. There's, there's a prayer that, that is looking ahead and with eyes of faith sees a reality, sees what God is going to do, sees his promise, and then steps out, you know, maybe stands up, steps out, and bumps right into a reality that is very different. How does she, or really more importantly, how are we supposed to deal with that? Because we face that too. That's what we're going to consider today as we look at 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 to 21. We're going to see here some large presentation of a reality, put around it a promise, and then we'll talk towards the end about how do we deal with that. Let me read beginning verse 11 through verse 21. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. 
Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Our passage for today. In, in a very real way, this, is just, this passage is the beginning of a larger section. There are, there are other things that are just kind of hinted at and touched on and started but we deal with this one today because there's a particular point that's brought up. We'll see as we walk through it. Verse 11 begins with Elkanah, who is Hannah's husband. He probably came with her when she brought up Eli. Time then to go back. So they leave the, the Lord, Lord's house at Shiloh and they go home. And they leave the boy, that is Samuel, there. And the story stays there at the sanctuary with this boy. And in fact, the story is staying with two sets of boys. There's a, a clever bit of wording in this passage. There's a word that's used in a couple of different ways. The word translated boy in verse 11, it's the same word translated as servant in verse 12. You might have a footnote that says something like young man. It's also in verse 15, it's in the plural in verse 17, and then it comes again as boy in verse 18 and 21. It's the same word. And in some contexts, we know we should translate a boy because we've got an obvious family context and we've got a, a young male. But the root of the word, the basic meaning of the word is something like maybe junior or minor one, sub. So if you've got a family and you've got a, a, little, a little male, a sub, junior, minor would be a boy. But there are other contexts in the Bible when the same word is used to describe clearly full-blown adult males with children themselves, not boys, but usually they're holding some sort of an office or a standing or a status that makes them juniors. So the word can be used for a couple different purposes, and here we have the same word used to describe these junior priests, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They're, they're not the top priest, that's Eli. They are beneath him, juniors, minors. So what we have going on here are, are not 
three different categories of Eli, Eli's sons, and then their servants. We have two categories of Eli and the priest's minors, the priest's young ones, the priest's boys. And that word is used to create a contrast. These two boys and this boy. We have, verse 11, the boy ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And then we have how the other boys are doing. And then we come back at the end, verse 18, Samuel ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, priest garb. Verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So bookending this, we have one boy who is ministering to the Lord, not to himself, and is growing in the presence of the Lord as a priest. And in the middle, we have a calamity. Verse 12 is a punch in the gut. Literally, it reads, Now the sons of Eli, sons of worthlessness, did not know the Lord, which is as much about Eli as it is about the boys. You see the, the parallel there. If you said, the sons of Steve, sons of the pastor, I'm, I'm talking about pastor in two different ways. The sons of Eli, the sons of worthlessness, Eli is worthlessness. And so are his boys. Sons of worthlessness who do not know the Lord as priests. And then here's how the whole thing plays out. We see how they show they're not knowing the Lord. It shows itself at the expense of the people. It says in verse 14, this is what they did to the Israelites when they came to Shiloh. They came to worship and they were afflicted. Something was done to them. The priests robbed them. If you read the law, there is... The priests are supposed to eat off of the sacrifices. That's all clear, good, right. That's how God's going to provide for the Levitical priests. But they are provided for before the offering. How the sacrifices would work, you'd bring an animal. Certain portions that are specified would be given to the priest. And then the family would offer the rest of it to atone for, to pay for sin. The blood, the death of the animal covers the sin. And then they sit down, sin atoned for, to a fellowship feast, eating that meat. They sit down in the presence of the Lord, eating a feast of communion, of fellowship with him in his house there, or on the grounds around. So they take that before, and then afterwards they show up again with a three-pronged fork and say, we'll help ourselves to a little more, thank you. And they're robbing them one by one by one by one. And moreover, even worse, they rob God which must be understood in the context of we, we, you know, the fat. We don't understand fat. Fat's bad. We cut the fat off and throw it away. Fat is a good thing back then. Fat is precious. Fat is a sign of blessing. Fat is good tasting. I mean, I guess it's still good tasting today. But fat is valuable and good, and God said, that's mine. I'm the most honored one here. I get the best portion. And the priests, these worthless men, say, No, you don't. We are the most honored ones here. And when the worshipper said, Oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. At least let us burn the fat first before you take this. They'd say, No. Give it. 
or we're going to take it by force. There's nothing they can do about that. It's stunning if you think about it. The, the high-handed priestly offense. Verse 17 is an apt summary. The sin of these juniors was very great in the eyes of the Lord, for they treated his offering with contempt. And the righteous sacrifices were, were just left their powerless looking at all, helpless, probably grieved by it because they realized what it was saying about God. They realized the danger it was putting the whole sanctuary system in. This, this is some of what is at the very root of the exile itself. You read Malachi. God talks about the sacrifices being treated with contempt and says, just close the door of the temple, why don't you? And let's stop this whole thing. Me meeting with you. Grieved by that, troubled by it, helpless before it, the righteous people sit there. What can we do? There's no hope. We bump into this hard reality of a wicked worship system. And men who are in charge of us, we have no recourse. They don't even know the Lord. What are we to do? But perhaps they might have noticed a little three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old boy tottering around the grounds, ministering to the Lord, growing in his presence. That's the two pieces. There's a reality. There's also a little reality over there. I've got to put those two things together. That's the passage for this morning. I'm going to break it apart into a couple of observations and then tie those together at the end, I think. So, here's the first one. It's about what God is concerned to do, God wants to do. I'll put it like this. The Lord is concerned to remove the barriers that stand between Him and His people. The Lord is concerned to remove the barriers that stand between Him and and his people. Whatever blocks connection, whatever would stand between God and his people, whatever kind of a barrier, blockage, whatever kind of gap there is there, he wants to close the gap, remove the barrier, whatever kind of language you want to use, so that God and his people can commune. It's the point I'm working on this morning. We see it in this passage as it introduces us to these priests. Now, there is, as I said, there's a lot more to come in the following passages about the priests, about what they're like, and about what God's going to do with them. So we don't see everything here this morning, but we do see that these priests are despicable. Eli's bad and the sons are worse. Worthless men, they rob the people, they rob God in, in an appalling way. Very great sin indeed. But we need to be sure, I've touched on it a little bit, but we need to be very clear on what the main threat is in what the priests are doing. The main danger, the main problem is not, as you, a worshiper, come there, the main danger is not that you're going to be robbed of some meat and have a little less meat on the table for this one meal of the year. That's, that's not, I mean, that's a problem. That's not the, the greatest problem. The, the real danger is not quite so tangible. It's a spiritual problem that shows up when we think more about what the priests are supposed to be doing. The priests, the, the Levitical priests, 
all of them, especially those who served at the house of the Lord where these sacrifices are being offered, the priest's basic business, their basic job assignment, was one of, of connection and cleansing. If you think of it like that, God and people, connection and cleansing. To cleanse the people, to cleanse them of sin, to cleanse them of all that would offend, so that they can come into and be connected to, come into the presence of and be connected to a holy God. The priests are about cleansing and connecting with a whole wide variety of jobs. If you think about all that they did, everything from evaluating uh, skin afflictions to judging other types of ceremonial cleanliness to teaching the Word of God to judging court cases to offering sacrifices, the priests had a wide variety of jobs. All of it is about taking what God is, what God's about, His Word, His character, His values, His wisdom, His blessing, and bringing them into the lives of a people who are now clean and can stand there accepted by him. That's what the priests are doing. Joining so that they will not be separated from him due to their condemning sin, polluting sin. That's most clear at the pinnacle of priestly work here with the sacrifices. The sacrifices are following on a pattern of death covering sin. At the temple, God dwells there right at the right at the center of it in a little cloud over the top of the ark, top of the ark of the covenant. God dwells there and people draw up to him and can only draw up to him if blood stands in the middle. Blood to cover sin, so they come with sacrifices. Again and again and again. The priests are working to cleanse so that they can connect. God can connect with his people. God designed that. It's a marvelous thing. But right there, that's where the problem from our passage looms. Because the priests are corrupt, trapped in very great sin, it says. And the whole connection then between the people and God, the whole connection is threatened because rather than clearing away barriers, the priests themselves are building one. Think of it perhaps like, like uh, water flowing through a pipe and if the spigot itself is in some way contaminated, whatever comes out is contaminated. That's the priest. Stands in the middle of the dispenser, the, the, the connection point, and ruins the whole thing. Instead of taking these two parties and joining them, the priests are stepping in the middle and doing that, separating them. And as I said, if you're a righteous worshiper, and you understand God, you're grieved by that, and you're frightened by it. You're grieved by it because you see a great dishonor falling on the Lord. You're grieved by it because you see that as the priests are leaders, they model, they model a life. And when God chastises his priests in Malachi, he says, the priests have turned away and have led others to do so also. You see the separation happening and you're frightened by it because you live in the period of the judges and you know 
that God is incited to anger by the wickedness of his people. It's been happening for hundreds of years. And you sense something coming from him as this goes on. And if you could read ahead in the Bible, you'd see the big exile looming on the horizon. There's grief and sorrow and fear as, as you, a righteous person, consider hallowed be your name, but it's not. Your kingdom come and, and cover this place, but it doesn't. Your will be done, but there's triumphs. Something's broken and you're powerless before it. Nobody can do anything about that except God. That's, that's the first turn right here. Do you see something? Do you see something about the character of God in this passage? It's so subtle because the main focus of the passage right in the middle is about all the wickedness in these two priests. But there's something so subtle around the edges. There's the answer right there. A little boy. Wearing a priestly ephod and, and a priestly robe, walking around and growing, provided by God to end up in this very place, provided by God. Now, he's a little boy. Who knows what's going to happen with that? Well, we've read ahead. We know what's going to happen. But all we can see so far is just the, the barest hint it's the barest hint of what he's going to do as we see the contrasting of the two groups of boys, two categories of boys. I'll come back to that later, the tension that that creates. But I want to consider the principle here just a little more broadly. The principle of God removing barriers between us and him. Because as we look at this passage, we see the, the lifting up of Barrier, problem, threat, grievance, solution. Just kind of off to the side, lower, smaller, solution. And as God does that, I, th I think there's something that we should consider about life. About life in general. We look around, very, I think very often, we look around and we face... A world, we live lives in which we see, to use the Lord's Prayer again, hallowed be your name. But it's not. Your kingdom come. Lord, to, to experience your kingdom reign and your kingdom values here in my family, in my life, in my workplace, on my street, Nope. I, I would settle for in my spouse, in my kids. That set my neighborhood aside. I'd nope. I'd settle for my own heart. Nope. I, I, I talked to people, some of you, this week, where this is your existence. Oh, God. 
that your name would be hallowed in this situation right there at this time of the week in my life. Oh, please. Oh, God, that your kingdom values would control these people in this situation. Please. That we would meet you, that we would have uh, just evidence that you're there. But there's something in the middle that says, I know what should be, I know what could be, but I'm grieved through tears. I look at it, it's not here, and I'm frightened that maybe it has left, that maybe it has abandoned me. It's gone. The high and the mighty and the arrogant and the proud still triumph in our lives. We are lowly and downcast. We see what God has promised. And it's not there. I need to say something here to I, to, I don't know who, I don't know who, but to some I'm sure. Because the greatest and most important barrier, the greatest and most important reason that we might be looking at life and seeing the trouble, the, the gap, the barrier between you and God is the fact that sin itself in your own heart creates a barrier. That also start there. I need to say, perhaps to some here this morning, do you realize that you were born with a barrier? Do you realize that your sin creates a separating barrier between you and God. And while I'm talking about being joined together and being connected and being grieved over the gap, I need to clarify that perhaps for you that gap exists because you're not a Christian. God has provided a way to remove that barrier by sending Jesus. By sending Jesus to be a sacrifice to pay for your sin. When we're talking here about priests and sacrifices and people coming together and cleansing from sin, I just want to be really clear so that it doesn't get missed. That has happened for you one time and you need to make a decision about that. There's only one sacrifice that could cleanse your sin. His name is Jesus. He was offered once on a cross, offered by God to cover sin with his death. And you need to make a decision about that. It is not the same as knowing it. That I, I've heard that, I got it. What I want to be very clear about is that you need to surrender your heart to it. Surrender your trust to that stuff you know. To that one who died as a sacrifice. If that initial barrier is not removed, then everything else I'm saying about God removing barriers is, is off the table. That's what has to start. So I plead with you, I ask you, and I might be talking to a new person here, I might be talking to a teenager who's been here for 10 years. I ask you, have you trusted Christ, yes or no? And if the answer is no, the barrier between God and you 
still exists. And any hope that you would have of experiencing the kingdom blessing from God in your life is a false hope. It cannot happen until your sin is paid for by Christ. Trust Him. Trust Him. But Christian, we still walk around struggling looking at the places in our lives where now with our, with our fellowship with God established, that barrier of our sin removed, we still live in a fallen world. We still have sin natures. Other people still have sin natures around us. And there's a lot of heartache and a lot of grief. There's a lot of gap between 1 Samuel 2, 1 to 10. The Lord breaks the bow of the mighty and the feeble bind on strength. The Lord guards the feet of His faithful one, but the wicked shall be cut off. There's a lot of gap between that and what actually is today. The first point is to say, God is concerned to remove that Separation, the, the barrier, the gap, whatever word you want to use. He is going to do that. And that leads right to the second point because there's a huge problem. That we look at the text and we say, he's going to do that. He has put Samuel on the scene. He's going to do it. But the huge problem is, that hasn't happened. When? So the second point, let me express it as as an exhortation. Patiently trust in the Lord's quiet, slow, renewing work. Patiently trust Him. There is is just a massive tension here in this passage that goes on for a while. If you follow it through... She prays, Oh Lord, break the bow of the mighty. Protect the feet of your faithful ones. Judge the wicked. And she gets up and she walks out and the priest says, Thank you very much. And she faces the mighty. Bow unbroken. Doing just fine, thank you. And how long does that go on? says that she made a little robe for Eli year after year when she came up to offer the sacrifices. And it says that the Lord visited Hannah and she didn't have quintuplets. She had five kids over years and the boy grew. The situation of high-handed, alarming, very great sin at the house of the Lord itself goes on for years with the Lord highly offended and silent. With no apparent movement. If we find ourselves in a situation for a day or three or a week in which we have 
a great trouble with another person and find a great separation from God and a great grievance and something that is of high offense to the Lord and breaks our heart and God does nothing about it. Are we not troubled by that? After a day or three or five years, years of silence. Why? Don't you wonder? Why? Why why does God not change something? Why does He not affect this clear and obvious solution to remove those guys? Why? Well, while acknowledging that, as Hannah's prayer said, the ways of the Lord are, are higher than ours, and He alone weighs His actions. We can't know everything as to when and why He does things. There is clearly a purpose that he has. It is a good purpose for us, his people. Does he not refine us? Does he not grow you while he makes you wait? Does he not, if if you can look back, does he not peel away from your life the things that actually weren't as important as you thought? And don't don't you find yourself settling on the, Lord, if just this one thing, if just this one thing. And then what I found is that the other things I really don't find to be so important. He's cleared away. He's refined me. Does he not build in you faith as he makes you wait? Does he not grow in you perseverance? Desire for him. Yes, he does all those things. Clearly, amongst a variety of reasons, clearly one reason that he does not act immediately is that he intends to grow you, to do you good. So, does he help us at all in the waiting? Well, I said, you look around and you see for years, silent, with nothing different. That's not entirely true. Because there is a little boy over here growing. And there is, back at Hannah's house, bedrooms filling up. Specifically connected to, remember Eli's statement, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. Every one of these children is supposed to be a little reminder. Remember when you asked me to have a child that you would give him back to my service? That pleased me. I give you a blessing. as a little... Uh, uh, nugget of, of thank you, if you will. I've lost words there, obviously. He's reminding, five times, he's reminding. Remember that back there, the, the vow? Remember that? That pleased me. Here's a child. That pleased me. Here's another expression of the covenant blessing. So God, in both of those situations, says, look back, remember how we are related, remember our past, and look around here, see what I am doing, in the light of the big, where it seems like I'm not active. So Christian, what this comes down to for us, we have a promise from a good God. A promise 
to clear out from between us and Him everything that would be a hindrance, a barrier to a full relationship with Him. A promise. One day, He will say yes to that in every way imaginable. But not yet. How do we wait for Him? By looking back and by looking around. And if you don't look back and don't look around, I'm telling you, if you don't look back and you don't look around, you cut off from yourself hope. Look back. What has he done? Who has he proven himself to be? He gave Hannah a child. And he reminds her of it repeatedly. He visits her, it says, to keep reminding her. What has he done for you? Look back. What has he done? And I don't mean particularly. I don't mean, well, he gave me a great job when I needed one. That, that's real. That's good. That's not what I mean. I, and I don't mean that he provided uh, a healing for this disease when I thought there was no hope. That's good. That's not what I'm talking about. What are we supposed to, ultimately, what are we supposed to look back at to see the goodness of God and His firm commitment to clear away every barrier between you and Him? What are we supposed to look back at? A cross and an empty tomb. That's real. That's provided by God to make sure to make sure that the barrier between the two of you you and him to make sure he makes sure that that gap is closed he removes that which offended in you your sin he removes it look back at that look back at it and then look around. Yeah, if you look around, there, there are massive things in some of our lives, and maybe next week in, in your life, there are massive things in our lives that speak of trouble, that speak of where is God, that grieve us, that, that worry us. But there is other. Do you have eyes to see it? He has given you a down payment of the coming kingdom. His Spirit does live in your heart, Christian. He is at work. He can be found. Sometimes you find it when you, when you go with tears in your eyes to your Bible, by yourself, sometimes with other friends. Sometimes if you have eyes to see Him and say, Show yourself to me, Lord. Sometimes you do see Him in circumstances that change. Yes, but we must, you must, be on the hunt to look for the grace of God in life because it's there. You take blessing out of your own hands when all you do is look at the trouble. Essentially, keep your eyes up and don't look at any four-year-olds. 
Look around. Promise. It's there. It's in your life. Because God is there in your life. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this passage, the chapter and following goes on to say a whole lot more, and you probably know a bunch of the rest of the story. But when we stop here, what we see is that God is inviting His people to trust Him, to entrust themselves to Him amidst His quiet and subtle work. It's quiet. It's not done. It's hardly even begun. But it's there. And little evidences of His grace are there. And He's inviting you to entrust yourself to Him joyfully. And like Hannah, with eyes of faith, see the future. He is motivated to clear away the barrier between you and Him. He will do it. You can trust Him as you look around and look back. So Christian, live in your joy. Even, even when the promise bumps into it, the hard realities of this life, live in your joy by looking at a God who has graciously acted to save and looking at a God who is visiting you even right now. He's there. Trust Him. Let me pray. Father, we look at a passage here that's kind of half the story. And in a lot of ways, our lives are just half the story too. You haven't shown us all the details of tomorrow yet. We don't know and therefore sometimes doubt and fear that you will continue to be with us and work to clear away the trouble and the hardship of life. But Lord, I pray for my friends here that you would give them strength in their hearts to look back and to look around and to know how wide and long and high and deep you have loved them. That you still love them and that you will love them. To see the evidence for it in the cross in the past, to see the evidence for it in their lives today, and to believe perhaps even for years to believe that you will step in and change everything one day. Give us help with that because, Father, our hearts are fickle and the world screams loudly at us. When the strong man comes and demands from us the sacrifice, we can see him really clearly and we fear him. When the spouses come raging into our homes, we fear them and see them and doubt you and forget you. 
when our parents leave us, we are very aware of that. Feel very afraid. When the doctors tell us what they do about our health conditions, we wonder where you've gone and why we can't experience you and why we've gone cold and feel dead. So would you, Father, touch your people here, particular ones in particular situations, assure them of your presence and of your goodness of your consistent and persistent grace in our lives, of your determination to be with them and to clear away whatever blocks the experience of you. Help. Father, Son, and Spirit, help. We are flesh. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So help. Lord, visit us and build us. Honor your name in us as you grow faithfulness. Give yourself to us. I pray this for the good of your people, your church, for the honor of your name in us and through us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.